Hey everybody, this is Sam, that girl with the curls, bringing you another wonderful episode, episode 31 actually, uh, with Kyle Higgins, who you will know as the co-writer of Cowl over at Image Comics, as well as the former writer of Nightwing and Batman uh, 2.0 for uh, DC. So I've talked to Kyle before um, on when I was at the other website, That Word of the Nerd, and he's always been a delightful uh, person to talk to, especially when, you know, seeing him at cons. He's he's very indulgent of uh, people's theories or wanting to just talk about whatever. So I thought I'd just bring him in and, and, and we'll we try another go at it as, uh, as this podcast uh, for this one. So he was very gracious with his time and his insights and everything. And, and I think the conversation goes into some interesting places, um, especially when he talks about filmmaking and sound and everything. I think that's uh, it's really interesting stuff, uh, especially within the context of comics and uh, also worth exploring, I think. Uh, it gives me ideas, but I won't tell you them now. Maybe later. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy this episode and uh, yeah, come back for some more. So we are recording now. Um, okay. Uh, but welcome to the podcast, uh, officially on That Girl with the Curls, Kyle Higgins. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I always uh, I always like talking to you. Um, you're a fun guy, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> on certain days, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah, like uh, like everyone else, you have our, have our good days and our bad days. <laughs> uh, hopefully we record on the good days. Um <laughs> <laughs> no one slips up and you're like, ah, oh, damn it. Uh, so actually where I wanted to start with you is that I saw your tweet from yesterday and you were, did you buy the Beast Wars DVDs? <laughs> I did actually, yeah. Oh wow. my god. Yeah, it's, it's funny because um, I'm not a Transformers fan at all, mm-hmm. but um, there was a period, I guess, well, when the show, when that show was airing, that uh, I think it, it was on at like six or seven in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so I used to see it like I had to leave for school probably like 10 till seven, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. or maybe a little after seven. And so if I got ready fast enough, like I had time to eat breakfast and watch like, you know, whatever was on that early. And, um, and Beast Wars was it for a while. And, and so I came in like a few episodes into the series and uh, I just, I really liked it, and then just kind of kept watching every morning, and, um, like, I couldn't really tell you what the plot was anymore, like, I don't remember the specifics, but I just remember it being, like, pretty complex for a cartoon, and, and um, just thinking it was, it was really, uh, it was really compelling, and so when I started working at DC, um, that was actually one of the first things that Dan and I talked about uh, when we met, was that he had been involved with uh, with Reboot and then uh, Beast Wars. And so, like, we talked about that. I think we all stuck with Deep Impact randomly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, yeah, it was, like, Beast Wars is, is, like, the only 
Transformers knowledge that I that I have. See, I'm in I'm in the same boat as you. Like, I don't have that attachment to Transformers that a, a lot of people I know do. Uh, like, I I remember being in my grandparents' house before I went to school watching Beast Wars in the morning. Just eat, exactly. eating my cereal and watching me like, man, Cheetor is the best. <laughs> yeah, Cheetor, Cheetor was my favorite too. And then there was a show after that that was like even more, um, the, the CG was even more complex. I guess someone said yesterday it was on Twitter, it was Beast Machines, I guess. I don't remember what the what it was called, but I do remember mm-hmm. like they completely like tweaked out Cheetor. It was... Um, I didn't. I don't think I liked it as much from what I can remember, but it was definitely uh, it was definitely interesting. I think that was on at the same time as um, the same era as uh, Spider-Man Unlimited, mm, yeah. which um, is wow. That was a little bit of a deep pull for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's too much. I mean, it, it, I I used to watch yeah the Spider-Man cartoon as well, and when they they changed it to like the more unlimited setting and. I was just never into that because I would get annoyed with Peter. He kept well, it was like he went to like an alternate timeline, didn't he? I thought he went into space or space. Yeah, it was something weird. Yeah, it, the because before they did that, he was always talking to himself. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't care for it. Yeah, and it was weird because like the first episode, he was in the classic kind of Spider-Man costume, and then when he went into space, he was in like a whole different suit and then that became the look mm-hmm. of the show and um i really liked the, the first spider-man cartoon they did in like 94 95 whenever mm-hmm. that was yeah and like the first season of that i i think still holds up um i haven't watched in a long time but i have like some of the the venom episodes i think on dvd um but after the first season if you ever if you ever uh, want to go down a rabbit hole late at night on uh, online Look up, uh, look up the '90s or like the '95 Spider-Man cartoon, like the production <laughs> kind of history of it. It got it got pretty wild. Like they weren't allowed to use guns, so that's why you had like laser rifles everywhere. Well, of course. <laughs> um, and then they weren't, which is weird because it was on Fox, and Batman the Animated Series was also on Fox at the same time, and they could use guns, hmm. um, which I think was a point of contention for a lot of the Spider-Man like creators, uh, show creators. Do you think it was because then, the WB Marvel thing, or you know, I have no idea. I have no idea. But um, but after the first season, like they started cutting the budget so bad that they ended up, and you, you notice it. I, I even noticed it as a kid. Like they started reusing web swinging shots. Oh yeah. <laughs> that uh, so. there was a what I remember really vividly is there was like a it was a crossover episode where it's like Madam Web sends Spider-Man plus, like, Storm and the Fantastic Four (laughs) and Doctor Doom to fight... I forget who they're fighting, but it's... It was, like, this big deal. It might have been. Yeah, I I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, the first season was pretty great. Second... I don't remember the... Yeah, I don't know where the delineation happened, but there's a point in time when... um, When the series turned into... um, like ten part or or twelve part like stories, mm-hmm. and a lot of times, um, like Fox would air it just completely out of order. Oh my god! So you get like Neogenic Nightmare Part Eight, and <laughs> had no idea what happened in Part Seven. Um, and it just yeah, it was weird. And then he's you know growing six arms, and then oh yeah, <laughs> search for his, search for a cure, and it just wasn't. It, it, 
it stopped being Spider-Man after after a while. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those cartoons where you're just like, that happened, right? Everyone, <laughs> did everyone see that? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It wasn't a massive hallucination back in the 90s. Uh, but yeah, no, it's still, that's definitely one of the shows that I like to go back to every once in a while and watch it, just because it is, it, when you rewatch it as an adult, you're just kind of like, oh my god, <laughs> what was this? Uh yeah, I, I, like I said, I haven't tried to rewatch it in a while. I do remember, and that's probably why I bought the DVD of the Venom episodes, I remember really liking the Venom episodes. Mm-hmm. But again, those were in the first season. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, j- yeah, just when I saw the Beast Wars thing uh, on your feed, it was just kind of like, oh my god, there's a, there's yeah. some memories. <laughs> I, uh, I don't tweet a lot, but when I Yes, very good. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's I just I could talk cartoons all day practically. I mean you've talked to me before about Batman Beyond, so you know. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like, uh, but we're we're mostly here to talk about Cal. We can also talk about whatever you want. But um, I've I'm, I've got to say like I know I I tend to gush a lot, but I really do love and enjoy Cal a lot. So well done, oh, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, and that's you and uh, uh, Alex Siegel? Yep, it's me and Alec uh, and Rod. And Rod. Uh, and then Troy, uh, Troy Pateri, uh, or Pete, Petery, actually, Pateri? I think, I think it's, it's Pateri. Pateri. Yeah. It's weird. I've known Troy a long time, and I actually have no idea how to say his last name. Well, now um, he'll know. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but Troy, Troy is our amazing letterer um, on the book. Well, it, and, um, and then, yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun. It's been a been a passion project for us for uh for quite a while and um for for me and alec and then you know we were very lucky to um to be able to work with rod and and now it's a passion project for all of us no it's it's a really um i mean just artistically and the writing and the story and everything it's just it's one of those books that i really do look forward to just like oh man when's i want to know more about like radia and blaze and (laughs) yeah yeah well there's there there's uh, a lot of history for the characters and, you know, we've teased bits here and there and we've revealed certain things or we've revealed backstories for, um, for some characters, um, or parts of backstories for some characters. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, but you know, it's, it's a big world and and we also, we didn't want to do an origin story, you know, so that makes kind of, um, parsing out some of that information, um, challenging because mm-hmm. um, you have to find moments to do it and you know you want to tease and allude without um, becoming frustrating for readers yeah I can um, I can imagine that I mean especially because you guys I mean the way it was um, advertised before it came out was like they're starting the they're beginning at the end of Cal right, right. And, which is I mean yeah you're just like there there is no like oh by the way here's the entire setup of how this group came together and and everything. Um, I mean, you had the the full, I mean, origin story, the Golden Age tribute to the Grey Raven, which was pretty damn awesome. <laughs> it was, but it didn't sell. It didn't? Oh! <laughs> I can say that. Aww. No, no. It's, um, we, we definitely took a, a numbers hit on that issue. Um, you know, it was something It was something a little out of the box that we wanted to try to do, and mm-hmm. we thought um, it'd be a cool way to not only fill in some of the backstory, but also, you know, get Rod a bit more time for the, for the second arc. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, um, I think what people respond to in the the series, uh, so much 
of his um, related to to Rod and related to his his vision for the world and um, and his art on the book. And so when you take that away, like you know, Elsa did a, an amazing job with issue six, but mm-hmm. it definitely is a is a total style and tone departure, which was the point. Yeah. Um, but I can understand if you know if you're um, if you're expecting one thing and get something completely different, um, I can understand how that would be a little off-putting. Yeah, I, I do get that. I, it's it's still weird to me, though, because it's just like, I mean, you figure you set this uh, world up in the 60s, so the beginnings would be back in, like, the 40s, where, you know, when Jeffrey was, you know, figuring things out or being, decided to become the Grey Raven. I don't Maybe it's just... Right. I have a love for that throwback kind of stuff, so it never well, bothered I, you me. Know, I do too, and, and I didn't used to. Um, but actually, as we started doing this book, or I'm sorry, as we started planning that issue, Alec and I went back to a lot of early '60s comics, and I realized that I had read a, a bunch of early '60s Marvel stuff growing up mm-hmm. uh, in reprints, and I haven't been able to look at that stuff for a long time because it feels so. Um, of that era to me in a way that is like, I can look at it as a historian, but I can't really enjoy, enjoy it on a, on a storytelling level. Mm-hmm. And that's something flipped in the last probably year and a half for me. Um, maybe it's just that, uh, I find the world, uh, an increasingly, uh, more depressing place. <laughs> so gee, I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the fantasy, the escapism elements of those early '60s comics—just the tone and, and the, the optimism—is um, is very uh, it's very appealing. It's mm-hmm. very alluring, and um, I think that's where you know some of my kind of reappreciation for them has started to come from. Yeah, um, it's definitely a different type of storytelling. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember when um, Azarello and Chang did the, um, I think it was the Zero issue for Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, yeah. yeah. And they went back to the Silver Age storytelling, and you're just like, wow, this is dialogue heavy. This is just narration heavy. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was a, that was a really fun issue. I remember that. I also remember reading it at the time going, oh, man, how did they get away with doing this? Uh, <laughs> I must learn Brian, their secrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Brian has talked. Brian has said in interviews like they ran so tight on the deadline mm-hmm. that there just there was no time for anyone to, to second guess or question like is this really the the thing we want to do for a zero issue? <laughs> um, they, they just had to get it done and, and that you know totally saved them. Um, yeah, it, that was his interpretation. Yeah, I, 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 think a, I thought it was a great issue. I loved it. No, yeah, it was it was fantastic in terms of I mean I mean I've talked about Wonder Woman forever. Uh, you know in in basically telling that story in his run, it made so much sense to go back to that and and use that style as well for when she's young and, and learning the ways of war. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I, 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 guess, what I, I guess what I'm referring to more is, is that, like, if you think about when that issue came out in the New 52, like, it was definitely kind of a, a phase where um, everything was, was, everything was dark and gritty. Everything had to be, you know... Um, Violent and and well, violence probably isn't the right descriptor. It, but the, the grim, the, dark kind of stuff. Yeah, like. there was definitely a, a, a grimness and kind of a darkness to a lot of the books, and you know we've seen that change. I think uh, in the last year or so, I mean, you see a lot of the stuff 
coming out now, you know, Batgirl is a, is a great example. And, um, Gotham Academy and, um, some of the books that, you know, are, are you know, stretch their wings a little bit more tone wise. Yeah. Um, but that Wonder Woman Zero issue is, is one of the, the early ones that I, I, you know, I point to as, as, um, kind of new era DC, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's smack dab in the middle of the run. Uh, well, not really. I mean, it was, that was when the first arc had ended pretty much, and then it's Silver Age uh, story. So, I mean, is there that sense of when you start an arc, I mean, especially with Cowl, and you, like, go uh, for something that is so tonally different, did you did you feel that there might have been some kind of disconnect with readers since you've only just started it? Um, maybe. I don't know. I, I, feel like the people, I feel like the people that are fans of the book get it mm-hmm. um and they got what we were going for with that issue i just think that anytime you do and of the 60s era comic it's tough it's tough in a modern market um to get eyes on it yeah you know because it because it feels um it feels a little gimmicky it feels like it's supposed to be you know historical and um for the same reason that you know period dramas and film you know, there's a lot of fear over um, whether they'll make money. Yeah, um, it, they're not you know totally accessible. Um, and Cowl already on its own is a pretty tough book uh, accessibility wise from month to month if you're not reading you know in a serialized way. Um, so that issue completely outside of the box of the rest of the series. Um, I could see it being kind of, you know, very off-putting as far as like, well, what the heck is this? The funny thing about it, though, is that uh, I actually think in some ways it's incredibly accessible. Like, I'm actually really proud of that issue, like, from a storytelling standpoint. And, like, The Grey Raven's Origin and, and kind of and, and the message um, inside the book, I think, is, is pretty classic mm-hmm. and um, pretty universal. And I actually gave the issue, um, I've given the issue to a couple, um, to a couple, like, you know, 10 and 11 year olds that are, that were comic fans and, and, um, I, you know, I, for a lot of the stuff I've done up until Batman Beyond, uh, 2.0, like, I had never written anything that was really all ages at all. Yeah. And even the Batman Beyond stuff gets pretty dark. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll cover that. <laughs> in spots. But, uh, but that issue of Cowl is something that I feel like I could hand to anybody to read. Um, the only downside of it being um, the of-the-era sexism that's pretty, uh, pretty uh, apparent and prominent in that issue um, yeah. is, is not is not great for, for kids, um, you know, but, uh, but other than that, I think the story itself is, is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty accessible for all ages. And it definitely, it, it helps in terms of like figuring out who, who Jeffrey is, who, you know, the, the Grey Raven, how he started and what kind of like led him down this path, uh, which is fascinating, you know. Well, assuming, assuming it's all true, assuming he's telling the truth. Oh, that's right. You know, the first, the first page of that issue Give special thanks to Jeffrey Warner and Cowell for unprecedented uh, access. Ah. So you know, there's there may be um, some, some some embellishments. Some, yeah, some some glossing over, if you will, um, on Jeffrey's on Jeffrey's part. But that's part of the allure of 
the story in the world for, for me. Um, so. Well, and, and now that you say that, I mean, that's a, I, I need to hit myself cause I didn't notice that detail now. So <laughs> I'm pretty good at details. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's all right. But, uh, but having said that now, um, it, it's, it does make sense within the context of, of Cowell because it is about crafting an image, especially in the 60s. Um, right. When, I mean, when you get these comparisons to, like, Watchmen and Mad Men, I mean, are you considering those compliments or are you just trying to be like, no, it's, it's my own thing? Um, you know, I, you, are you, I, I don't know. What's your reaction to those kinds of comparisons? Um, well, I think... Uh... I think those comparisons come from from a place of um, of ease. If mm-hmm. anything, um, I think I think it's impossible to do anything with period superheroes uh, with, with with any sort of kind of uh, postmodern take on period superheroes and not be compared to Watchmen. Yeah, um, I mean that's kind of the that's kind of the high bar, um, and for good measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, for good reason. Um, I don't think we have a lot in common with Watchmen, to be totally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we're dealing with an organization of superheroes in the '60s that started in the '40s. I mean, that's kind of as uh, you totally and, stole from it. I can't believe you. <laughs> well, and you know, they're they're morally jaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are morally jaded. So, I mean, that's again, I guess tone wise, there are some similarities there, but. But that's about as you know. That's about where they kind of stop, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, Mad Men. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that show, and again, it's more a look at. Um, it's more a, a look at you know the similarities in the era, right? That's that's where I think that comparison comes from a lot, and you know, you, you definitely got a little bit of a little bit of the kind of office politics and. Um, and things that, that Mad Men deals with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's, I, I understand that comparison, but I'd actually say we have more in common with something like House of Cards than anything, okay. um, where you're looking at a leader who is manipulating and spinning lies in order to get his way and to make progress and um, in his own mind uh, thinks it's all for the greater good and the ends justify the means because as long as they are in power, they know what's best and they can help people. And it doesn't matter how they stay in power as long as they stay in power. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are a lot of similarities there. I also think, um, you know, the big influence for me was always um, Darwin Cook's New Frontier. Oh, I love that um, book. <laughs> yeah, just, just from that era and from that kind of uh, look at superheroes through the lens of the 60s. You know, Silver Age comics through the lens of you know, actual events of the '60s is, I think, something that we we definitely play with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a lot of ways, I've always thought we have more in common with the New Frontier than we do with Watchmen. And, and also, you're—I mean, you talked about being a historian. Like you, I mean, Chicago in the '60s. I mean, it's just—that's an insane era. I mean, yeah, yeah. Just Chicago in any era, I think, is actually insane. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, was. You know, you you did that with Nightwing, where you took him to Chicago. I mean, I know you're from Chicago, so it's like, gee, I wonder why he keeps sending everything to Chicago. <laughs> it's almost like he's from there. <laughs> well, Nightwing, I can actually I can say Nightwing was um, 
that that one wasn't totally on purpose. Um, we were talking about moving him to a different city, and um, we were talking about moving him to a different city. I don't even think we had Cowell approved yet as a thing we were going to do. Um, but uh, my editor threw out moving him to New York, mm. and I said, "No, I said." New York is so associated with Marvel books, not to mention that I've always found it weird when there's a New York and a Gotham in the same, yeah. uh, you know, universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a New York in the DC universe in the New 52, but I don't like shining a light on that personally. Yeah. Um, and the other part of it, too, is that, in you know, pre-New 52, um, Nightwing was in New York already in Pete Tomasi's run. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I just felt like, you know, I've kind of been there and done that, and so I actually threw out, um, we, we started talking about different cities, you know, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, and, and I threw out Chicago, and I said, well, look, I said, I'm from there, I can count on one hand the number of books that have um, taken place there, especially superhero books, mm-hmm. and in the DC Universe, I can't really think of any, um, and definitely none in the New 52, so it kind of gives us an opportunity to world build in a way that could be unique and specific to Nightwing. Um, and so that's ultimately what we started to do. And also the other thing about Chicago that fit for, for Nightwing was that it's so neighborhood based. Yeah. One of the things that I like so much about Bloodhaven, uh, was that it was all, you know, with the exception of the downtown center of Bloodhaven, where you had a couple big skyscrapers, the rest of it was all very neighborhood based as well. And so that shorter buildings that were closer together, which allows for the parkour running um, mm-hmm. that a character like Nightwing would use to, to operate. It's the same way that, you know, Daredevil predominantly out of Hell's Kitchen um, kind of works, right? Did you use that um, um, that same philosophy with um, Nightrunner, the, with Bilal? Um, Bilal? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. When he's in, where he's in the, uh, the slums of Paris, he's not necessarily, he's not actually in um, he's not actually in, you know, the downtown central Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's because that's the thing about Europe as well is that it's very condensed, very you know tightly uh, tightly pushed together with a lot of neighborhoods. Like I was I was in Barcelona like a few months ago and just how close everything is, and you're just like, my God, if you're claustrophobic, <laughs> this is not the best place for you sometimes. <laughs> Oh, I can imagine. I've never been to Barcelona, but um, it's on my list. It's it's lovely. I was there for five days. It was it was great. Highly recommended. Oh, cool. Yes. Very cool. If you like food and stuff, it's great. <laughs> well, I do like both of those things. Excellent. I, I'm, it's good that you like generic, broad strokes um, reasons well, to go. I am, I am a human. <laughs> well, there you go. Are you sure? I'm just saying. We're getting a lot of AI tests coming out these days. <laughs> Yes, today I'm sure. Okay. Well, as long as you're aware. Um, but yeah, with because uh, it's one of the things that I do appreciate about Cowell is that there is this level of historical, I mean, as accurate as you can get um, in terms of like the, the actual, um, I guess, tone and style, like how people were treated. I mean, you only, we only really have uh, radia to kind of go by, but there is that, you know, sense that she's, she feels like she has nothing to do and she's so powerful and especially with this most recent issue um which it's just like you're just kind of like yes finally (laughs) she yeah that's been building this most recent issue issue nine um what we're talking about Mm -hmm. uh 
that's been building for quite a while. And, um, you know, like I was saying before, we're definitely a book that benefits from reading a bunch of issues all at once in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, dare I say reading an entire arc oh my in God. one sitting. Um, Scandal. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I mean, look, I spent four years writing, um, you know, Nightwing and, and Batman stuff where every issue, there was a big focus on being, every issue being accessible and I, and, and possibly someone's first. And I do think that that, I, I do think there's total, totally merit for that. And, and I do try, even with Cowell, to make things as accessible as I can. Um, whether, you know, I mean, just simple kind of like comic book storytelling 101 stuff of making sure we know everyone's name, you know, mm-hmm. um, in every, the first time we meet them. Um, and uh, a recap page, uh, which is something that DC doesn't do, but I, I'm a big fan of recap pages mm-hmm. because it allows you to be a little subtler in the storytelling um, without having to just drop in information, you know? Yeah. Um, but still, I think that, I think the series definitely, um, it's a style that we chose. Alec and I were, made a very conscious choice that we were going to write it as chapters of a book. Um, each issue was going to be a chapter. And, uh, you know, we would make, we would make things accessible as far as like reminding readers of kind of what happened, you know, an issue or two before we would do the best job we could of, um, of doing that in, in an organic way, but where we can't, we're not going to really sweat it. Um, and so I, you know, it's, it's not a, it was an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that, um, you know, the next thing we do, we might do, we might try a different approach with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but on this one, you know, we I just went down, I just went the other day as I was working on um, some stuff for issue 10 and 11 to wrap up this arc. Um, I sat down and read the first nine issues um, in one sitting, and I thought they tracked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, I was I was I was really proud of him. So um, I think once you know the trade comes out for volume two here, and um, maybe even some sort of oversized hardcover that collects both volumes uh, one day, uh, <laughs> I think I think the whole thing can be taken in one sitting. Um, I think that will. I think a lot of the subplots and a lot of the nuance that we have tried to. Um, embed the book with will become that much you know clear it'll make more those things will will pop a little bit more yeah it's it's it is interesting like the especially with the way that people are consuming media these days i mean comics especially because we have digital readers and uh we we can kind of go a while without reading stuff like everyone's either into one issue you know issues as they come out or collected volumes so it's it's interesting like you're thinking ahead in terms of like well if we did a, a huge, like, you know, cover, you know, a hardback cover of the first two um, arcs, and then it's just like, that's the story I want people to read. I mean, it's it's an interesting way of, of looking at it, I think. Yeah, it's tough. I'm still figuring out, um, I'm still learning and figuring out what kind of works and what people like in the, in the creator-owned um, space. Um, I will say that it's... It's definitely the monthly comics. I, I hope I don't sound like I'm turning my nose up mm-hmm. at 
the monthly floppies because um, that's not the case at all. I mean, the, the reality is that the only way to keep your book going is for your monthly sales to be strong. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the lifeblood of a creator-owned book. It's the lifeblood of any book, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cowell is no exception. Um, you know, I think we definitely fly under the radar. And some of the things that I just mentioned, just as far as our accessibility and our, our storytelling approach goes, I don't think those things necessarily help. Um, but I... I am very, very proud of the book. I know Alec and Rod are very proud of the book. And um, at the end of the day, I think, I mean, that's kind of something that we're, we've kind of bit the bullet on. I mean, we, we want to do something that we're proud of. I mean, we've all we've all worked on things in different mediums before where we're not crazy about the finished product, you know? Yeah. And um, this was something that um, we all made a very clear decision on early that we were going to do it the way we wanted to do it. And if it worked, great. If it didn't, then at least we'd be proud of the work. So, well, and, and, that's, and that's great. I mean, that, that's the thing that I, I really do like hearing from people who are part of the creator-owned um, you know, world right now because it is something that's becoming so much more prominent with Image and Dark Horse and Boom and all that kind of stuff that there's companies willing to take those chances on books that obviously don't rely on heavy use of continuity or aren't necessarily like the typical superheroes that we would see. Um, so it's, I think that, you know, following your passion and making something that you're proud of, you know, even if, you know, the sales are, are a bit lower than maybe you wanted them to be, that's, that's still fantastic. Um, oh yeah. And you know, it, the, the funny thing to me still is that the first creator owned book I do is superhero related. <laughs> you <laughs> so can't get away from it, can you? Say, I think I can safely say that outside of Cowl, I don't know that I will ever do another creator-owned superhero series. I just, <laughs> I don't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I don't know. Maybe that'll change one day, but I just, uh, I just don't see it. I'm a little, I'm a little superheroed out, to be honest. That's probably understandable. <laughs> Uh, are there other genres that you've you've wanted to explore at this point? Uh, I mean, yeah. oh yeah, I mean, um, I've actually got uh, I've got two new uh, books coming up that um, we have not announced yet. So um, those will be, I think, when they're announced um, in the next couple months, it'll make a lot more sense, kind of what what those genres are. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but uh, yeah, there there are two different things that. I'm doing that are they're they're completely different from each other, mm-hmm. um, and especially in, in genre-wise, they are as well. So, gonna mix it up. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. Um, well, and, and just going back to with Cowell, because um, I've been listening to um, was it uh, Joe Clark's uh, album? Oh yeah. And and I think. Because that just kind of feeds into again, like you're experimenting with uh, the comic uh, comic book medium in a way that I don't see a lot of happening, except for like maybe Kieran Gillen and uh, Jamie McKelvey, like with um, with Wicked and Divine and Phonogram and everything. You know, adding a musical companion to your book. Um, well, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I, no, not to, to take anything away from from Kieran and Jamie, but I don't know that they have they put out original music for the book no they haven't they've they've referenced songs like they've um i know they've put out playlists on like spotify and everything 
Right, right. like, here, listen to this to get an idea of, of this. Um, so, right. okay, not in the same vein, but yes, you do have original music. Well, yeah, I was just going to you know, give Joe a plug for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about. Um, the Cowl Sessions is a 60s bebop, uh, hard bop album that Joe Clark, uh, is one of my best friends since like sophomore year of high school, mm-hmm. um, Joe composed all of these songs uh, as if they were written about our characters in the world of Cowl. So um, I actually think we're going to have the album appear in one of the, uh, in issue 10 or 11. Oh, cool. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, so, so Joe is a, is a big uh, jazz composer and trumpet player in Chicago. And so he put this together and recorded it and uh, had it mastered and had it mixed and mastered. And then um, we put it out through uh, through Bear McCreary's record label. Um, it's called The Cowl Sessions. It's available through Amazon or iTunes as a, as a digital download. And it's a, actually a pretty good companion piece for the first trade, for the first arc of the book. Yeah, it's um, it's really well done, and um, I mean, just speaking as someone who's maybe you know, I'm not really the biggest jazz person, but I really enjoyed this album. Uh, it just yeah, was what was the process when you were when you were collaborating with uh, with Joe on it? Like with each character, um, did he like get a description, or you just kind of throwing well, a? Joe's been involved in the world for uh, for a long time, pretty much since its inception. Mm. Um, the book uh, originated as a short film that I did in college. It was my senior thesis film. And so Joe actually uh, scored the film. He, he wrote oh. all the music for the movie. So some of these themes he's had um, or been you know, kind of working on or had a version of for several years now. Mm-hmm. Like the Grey Raven uh, theme and, and actually the Wraith theme. The Wraith theme he wrote for the short film. Oh. Um, and... Uh, you know, the Wraith character has not appeared in Cowl yet. Uh, emphasis on yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, perhaps very soon. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, you know, I just, I love the piece so much that we wanted to include it. As far as the other characters, um, yeah, I mean, Joe definitely, I sent him kind of all my scripts and books anyway, we, you know, just to read and. I always get his feedback on stuff because he's a—he's actually a very—he's got a great story sense, um, just in general. And so we always we talk about stuff all the time, even outside of this project. So he was very aware of kind of who the characters were. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, I used to the way he and I met is because we played in jazz bands together in high school. Oh, nice. And, yeah, and then I went and he went off to DePaul and majored in in um, in composition and and uh, in trumpet playing and. Uh, I think emphasis was in jazz composition. Mm-hmm. And I went off to Chapman where I was going into film, but I still played in the jazz bands at Chapman on the side. Um, and so there's, you know, I have a little bit of a music kind of knowledge and um, vocabulary that I can talk to him in. And it's not nearly as developed or as advanced as, as his is, but mm-hmm. um, it's enough, you know, so I can, I can get pretty detailed if, if need be, or if there's something specific I'm looking for. Um, and a lot of the stuff honestly came down to, um, you know, like the, the John Pierce, the investigations piece. I told him I wanted a, I wanted some sort of, um, I wanted like a miles, a miles Davis, um, um, 
uh, shoot, now I'm blanking on the type of mute. Uh, it's not a cup mute, it's a Harmon mute. I wanted like a, a Harmon mute track like you would hear in a lot of like the late 50s Miles Davis Gil Evans albums. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Joe kind of took that idea and if you listen to it, there's a lot of muted trumpet on that track and, and building it. And I was like, well, where does this fit? And we said, well, it does kind of feel like an investigative type of thing. And okay, well, this would make sense for John's story. Um, we wanted to do something that kind of evokes, evoked a uh, beautiful, powerful sense of longing for radio. And uh, that's where, you know, some of there's, there's definitely kind of a taxi, taxi driver kind of feel yeah. to her track. Um, and you know, some of that just comes out of experimentation and some of it comes out of just influences that mutual influences that Joe and I have, um, both in movies and music. And yeah, it's just a lot of back and forth. It was very organic. Is, do you have a, a, was, is Wraith your favorite piece or do you have a particular favorite? Um, you know, I like the Arclight piece a lot. Mm -hmm. That was another one that we were pretty specific about for Arclight. I I told him I, I really wanted to do. Um, something that a very kind of Dizzy Gillespie chart so very frenetic very um, you know long runs uh, perhaps some atonal stuff in there mm-hmm. and that's you know it, it's something that really conveyed power and energy and that's where the arc light you know composition comes from um, and that's that's probably my favorite I, I think the, the arc light track and and the Grey Raven track are, I think, probably my favorites. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed um, Grey Raven. Um, I like Blazes uh, just because it, yep, it yep. felt like something you could read like a Ginsberg poem to. Yeah, it's a great, it's a blues progression, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, it's got a great bass line. No, it's, like I said, I, again, I could just keep gushing. But uh, but also going through uh, Bear McCrary's uh, label, how, how cool is that? <laughs> Oh yeah, it was, it's great. Um, Bear's Bear's actually a very uh, good friend of mine, and um, I've known him for geez five or six years. Mm-hmm. We actually became friends before I was even writing comics, um, or I think I think I just started or was just going to start. He I met him at Comic Con back in like two thousand and two thousand and nine, I want to say, mm-hmm. and um, I gave him a copy of. Of the league of, of the film um, that Kyle was based on, <laughs> and he watched it and was was pretty uh, pretty taken by it. And then we just you know we actually lived pretty close to each other in LA, so we just started hanging out and, and uh, became you know really good friends. And um, so when he and I sat down for we had lunch a couple months ago, probably well actually more than that now because the album came out in October. Yeah. But we sat down and I was planning to. Um, record a little piece of music that Joe wrote um, for a book trailer that I was going to animate um, for the launch of Cowl. And so I played this piece for Bear, and he he really liked it, and he's a big fan of Joe's uh, Joe's work as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said, you know, he said, if you're going to record this, he said, you should stack some stuff and see if Joe could write... Um, you know, some other pieces and basically maybe we could just put out an album based on Cowell and his record label to that point had only put out his own material, but he was looking for other opportunities that would might make sense mm-hmm. and doing a soundtrack for a comic 
you know, hadn't really been done before. And so it was, in a lot of ways, his idea um, that kind of kicked off what became the call sessions. Well, that's, that is really cool. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, because, uh, where was I going with this? I was going somewhere, and then I lost it, and I almost had it, and then I lost it again. <laughs> like, Welcome to writing. I know, oh my god. There's just been days where that's happened before, where I'm just like, I had ideas, and then they went away. <laughs> yep. uh, well, actually, speaking of writing, let's let's then let's go to you and Alec. Um, how how does that collaboration work between the two of you? Um, it varies. I mean, he and I have been working together in one form or another for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we he and I met in high school, similar to me and Joe. I am noticing such a pattern here. <laughs> find people that you gel with creatively um you know you you tend to to work with them again and again because there's a comfort factor there oh definitely um and you know you push each other to make things better and um you know you feel but you also feel safe with those with those people Mm -hmm. um and uh so yeah so so alec and i i think work very very well together and um I'm definitely more of a kind of type A personality, mm-hmm. and Alex, uh, Alex, very adaptable and can go with the flow. And um, you know, if something's not working and and something's bothering me, he'll just kind of he'll just kind of all right. Well, what if we like let's talk about it then? Like, what if we go in this direction? And like, we're not precious about anything. Um, and that's a great uh, that's a great dynamic for any sort of collaboration or you know co-writing. Yeah. So um, on the book, we tend to break the, the big story beats and the dynamics of each scene. We, we figure them out together. We we talk about them. We you know we'll break them together, and then I'll usually write up an outline, or um, he'll start an outline and I'll add to it, and then we'll just start kind of figuring it out. Um, and piece by piece putting it all together. And then um, we just kind of start splitting up scenes and then, you know, I'll tackle a three-page thing and he'll tackle a four-page thing and then we'll change and I'll work on the stuff that he was doing and maybe he'll, he'll touch the stuff I was doing. And, and it just kind of it just kind of builds on itself. At a certain point, though, um, we do tend to, you know, actually sit at the computer together and go line by line. Oh, really? You know, like, yeah, I mean, like, one person will type and the other will talk, or... Yeah, I mean, it gets pretty... Um, and and it, it gets pretty specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've co-written with other people before. Like, Ryan Parrott's one of my best friends, and I've co-wrote, um, you know, a couple issues of Gates of Gotham with him. And, uh, you know, I love Ryan to death, but we you know, we cannot sit at the keyboard together. You know? like, we're... <laughs> We're very like we, it'll, it, we almost come to blows, you know. Like we're just we're we're both pretty dominant, you know, personalities as far as um, as far as writing goes, as far yeah. as you know, creative stuff goes. So, um, I, and I think a lot of co-writers are like that. I think a lot of co-writers are, you know, they can't actually sit over each other's shoulder or anything like that. You know, it's different for every person. It's different for every partnership. So. Yeah. Um, is, so with your collaboration with Alec, I mean, I know you've been writing some issues of Eternal, uh, Batman Eternal. Um, 
how how is that uh is that different or is it you just kind of sitting there with like scott and talking about that kind of stuff or (laughs) no no it's um it's very different it's it's uh i don't even know how to describe it to be honest um (laughs) the whirlwind and my my role on that book is so different from um from from the other guys' roles um i came in pretty late um because I was essentially replacing John Lehman. Mm-hmm. John had to step away, um, and uh, and so I, you know, they, they reached out to me and asked if I wanted to to work on it. And at the time, I was I was either just wrapping up Nightwing or I'm trying to think. Actually, yeah, that that timing would that would be the right that would be the same time because I wrote my final issue of Nightwing in like December of 2013, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I took the job on Eternal, like, around the same time. Um, but, and so, yeah, so I came in, like, nine or ten issues into the series. And I had originally been talking to them, like, months and months and months earlier about, you know, like, in the very, very early stages mm-hmm. about doing it. And then it didn't work out. Um, but so when they came back to me, you know, nine or ten issues in, it was interesting to see the stuff that we had talked about in the very early days and how it had either stayed or changed or what had happened to it, what the story had become. But then, you know, it was also a dynamic of the train is not only barreling down the tracks, but the tracks are laid out for the foreseeable future. And, you know, definitely through the first act and the big stuff in the second act and the third act's a little looser. So (laughs) it started from a, a place of like here are the beats you have to hit in the issues that you're writing to okay now we're a little bit looser like let's all get in a room together in new york and um start hammering things out where we're all kind of adding to the story um and they had done that before i got involved but that was with john mm-hmm. um so yeah it's all kind of spearheaded by james or it was spearheaded by James because uh-huh. we're, we're done now. I mean, we've, we've wrapped the series and um, yeah, James kind of kept James and the editors kept everything in track uh, or on track. And Scott was involved in kind of a, a broader sense. Um, and he was there to, you know, during the summits to help kind of guide things and see, you know, give the, the bird's eye view on everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to talk about some of the, the themes of the series and what we're going to be exploring and, and stuff like that. Um, but it really was James's baby. And yeah, I mean, a, a, in, in a dynamic like that, you know, you try to support um, the showrunner essentially is what James was doing. Um, and uh, you give them what they need. Um, and if you can solve problems and, you know, strengthen things and, and make things better, then great. Um, but if you can't, then, you know, you, you do the best you can with, massaging things or, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to step, you know, step over any boundaries. Yeah. Um, and that was actually what was great about the book and the, the guys that, you know, I was working on it with is that I think we all respected each other a lot and there was no, you know, there was never any malice. There was never any, um, uh, lack, there, there was never a lack of respect, um, from any of us. And so we were all pretty, we were all very helpful and very supportive of each other's um, issues. And, you know, we were all very adaptable too. if someone couldn't make something work. Like if someone wrote 
because we let me take a half step back. Okay. We have outlines for here's where where the, you know the arc is going to have to go. Here are the beats that you need to hit. You need to you know figure out a way that to work these into your your issue. So if you, I'm doing a three issue arc, it's like you have to make sure you, you keep this spoiler subplot running and you know this this and this. And uh, and so sometimes you would write the issues and you would ad lib a little bit, and because you don't know because you're writing your arc at the same time as you know Ray and Tim who are writing their arcs. And Ray's arc may take place before yours, and Tim's arc may take place after yours. So it's a little freeform in that way, right? Mm-hmm. So there's definitely um, a back and forth that has to happen where we're all emailing each other and checking in on stuff. But then once the scripts are done, there's a matter of looking at what what tracks and what doesn't, and then each of us adjusting our stories to fit and to support, you know, the other writers. Um, we're all trying to make each other look good. Yeah. Um, is the best way to put it. Do you, you uh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, that's, that's about it. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Um, I mean, it, do you like that kind of, I mean, I don't know. I know you wouldn't want to do that environment all the time, but you know, do you like that kind of collaboration that kind of like, okay, we need to, it's so loose and yet it is kind of structured at the same time. I mean, is, is that something you gravitate towards? Not usually. No. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a it was a, a fine experience and and I'm glad I I'm glad I did it and you know I'm I'm happy with the issues um, and I, I'm you know I think the book uh, the book was a lot of fun um, I don't think I would do it again not out of any ill will towards anyone or out of anything other than um, my own kind of interests and and what I'm kind of looking to do now and. Um, you know, Alec and I are, are co-writing stuff, but I also like to solo write a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, doing a book where you're basically co-writing with like four other writers is, um, you know, I kind of already have a co-writing uh, side of my life. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's just, I, I don't, I, yeah, I just don't know that I'm a great fit in that in that dynamic. It's like trying to separate work from home kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Here's my co-writing and here's my solo writing. Thanks. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, and before we get really off Cal, I want to talk about Rod's artwork because oh, yeah. it's so, I mean, especially with uh, issue nine, um, I, I love like everything uh, that involved the, the lettering as well. Uh, like that stuff with uh, Rod's artwork, it was so gorgeous and just really awesome. Like how uh, Doppler, this, this new uh, sort of newish villain uh, uses sound. Cause that's so cool. Like I've never seen that done before. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. I can't say enough things, enough great things about Rod and, and his work. Um, I just feel incredibly lucky and fortunate to have the opportunity to do this book with him. Um, yeah. I, I just, yeah. <laughs> how much more pages, can you say? <laughs> yeah. Every issue, they just get better and better. And, um, yeah, I, I just I just think the world of them. And is that um, within the when when he does the artwork because there there's this sense of like um, some issue some panels look like it it's implying like rain almost or there's splatter that kind of stuff. Yeah, is that from him or is that from you in terms no, of? No, that's like, all from him. That's all him. I mean, we're at we're at a point now where I'm I'm pretty loose 
we're pretty loose with what we're we're asking, what we what we give them. I mean, we're giving him breakdowns and we give them, you know, the dialogue. But as far as like, as far as you know, specific shots or or tone or, or things like that. I mean, it's 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 pretty much uh, it, you know we're looking to be uh, surprised by him in, in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, and you know, I had this. I've had this experience with a couple artists. Um, Eddie Barrows is a, is another one, mm-hmm. and Rod worked with with me and Eddie on uh, Nightwing. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, that's actually where Rod and I met. But uh, but yeah, it's it's at a certain point, like when you when you trust your artist, um, and you have you guys have a creative relationship and, and shorthand going, um, you just start to get, uh, you know, with with the, with the with the certain kind of artist, you start to get just. Um, if you let them off, well, that'd be a bad metaphor. Hold on. I was going to say, if you let them off the leash, but that's implying that <laughs> the artist was on a leash in the first place. I guess the more that you trust your artist, the, the, the greater the ceiling is going to be as far as what the work, um, will come back with, come mm-hmm. back as, um, there are things that he, that Rod has done on the book that he did just to try and they weren't in the script at all and if we had asked him to stick to the script it, we never would have gotten some of the things that that came back in the mm-hmm. series um and i think the book is all the you know the, the book is so much better as a result of 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 rod kind of ad-libbing you know and bringing a lot of himself to it and, and i think that's you know the best books are collaborations in the truest sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's what we have here. And, and that sequence that you're talking about with the sound villain, um, you know, where, where that actually came, it, it comes from exactly what I'm talking about. I, I like doing, um, I like doing sound based characters in comics because, um, with lettering and, and sound effects, there are ways to, visually um portray sound yeah um in a way that uh i'm sorry there are ways to to visually portray sound that no other medium can do Mm -hmm. and uh i think that's fascinating i also used to work as a sound editor so there's you know i'm just very i don't know i I just i really like that stuff you just have an attachment to it and uh yeah exploring that kind of stuff what started to happen on cowl so so there's that that's, that, that's always kind of in the back of my mind, right? But the other thing was that Rod started painting in his own sound effects mm-hmm. um, in issues, and they were really cool. <laughs> um, and so more and more I saw this and went, oh, man, I wonder if I can work, like, can I work this, this style of his sound effects into, into a character? Because I like doing that anyway. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of um, a villain who can kind of rework sound and, and manipulate it into different sorts of energy, um, and or into different sounds, was me trying to find a way to take advantage of something that that Rod was doing on his own, which like again was painting the sound effects into the art, yeah. as opposed to letting the letterer do it. And and there was a I think there was a one panel. I want to say that Doppler was standing on the sound. Yes. I, okay. I so that yeah. There's that panel, but my favorite panel, and I don't remember if this was in the script or, oh, I remember what it was. So there's a panel where 
the script, we described Radia rushing through the door to save the alderman. Mm-hmm. And um, the alderman says, oh, thank God. And the script calls for Doppler to use the, the words of, oh, thank God, and kind of rework them into, um, you know, some sort of Weapon. force to hit Radia with, right? Yeah. And, and Rod came back and said, can I have him grab one of the letters out of the word balloon and actually then use the letter as a weapon? And I said, well, yes. Of course you can. <laughs> that's awesome. I've never seen that before. And maybe it's been done before. I'm, you know, everything's been done before. But Simpsons I have not did seen it recently. Um, <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. And it's awesome. It's my favorite. It's my favorite moment. In, uh, in the series, actually. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and it's it's so, I mean, just, yeah, it's so unexpected. Like, he just grabs the D and just whack. <laughs> like, exactly. It's, yeah, it is really cool, and, and I, I don't know if that's been done before, or, I mean, it, yeah, like you said, it probably has, but it's really cool how Rod does it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, man, yeah, and, I mean, just his style alone, like, there's, there's just times where it, it seems like a, like a really well done painting with just some lines added over it. Uh, it's just, yeah, it, like I, it's gorgeous. Like you said, like it's, it's hard to describe it, you know, well without just sounding like, and good, good. I don't know what else to tell you. It's so good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so now correct me if I'm wrong on this one, because uh, knowing that you have the, the love for Batman beyond, um, there does feel like a, a bit of a shriek. Um, uh, sense to Doppler, like a little bit. Oh sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't think. Uh, I, yeah. In the cartoon, Shriek was never. Shriek never manipulated sound quite in this way. I mean, there, there's obviously the episode. There's the Babel episode where um, he's using the towers as a tuning fork and essentially like phase canceling, you know, um, noise. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like taking a noise and reworking it into something else. Um, I actually did a new piece of technology in Batman Beyond 2.0 for Shriek that did something similar, but it wasn't that it took sound and turned it into other energy or turned it into, um, yeah, any other forces. Mm -hmm. What it did was it took sound and phase shifted it and replaced it with essentially, you know, other sounds, meaning like a sound effects library. Right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, it, subtle difference, I guess. Oh, but, no, um, I mean, it's more like the, the. it feels like Batman Beyond has a, a, an influence on, um, and as well, just the Tim universe has some influence on Cowl. Uh, like, uh, Jeffrey's Grey Raven story feels very uh, Grey Ghost to me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... Is it Grey Ghost? I mean, I know... It's, I think it's just more in style. Similar, like, Yeah, yeah, the design is, is similar. I mean, that dates back to our short film. Mm-hmm. Um, the Grey Raven and the Grey Ghost. And, like it's, um, I mean, that's, yeah, that's very surface level, but it just, I don't know, maybe it's just because I do know the, the Batman Beyond stuff and, and, you know, your history with it, so it was just kind of like, maybe that's there. I don't, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I... Oh, yeah, no, I, I'm definitely definitely influenced by the animated series um that was a big part of what got me into comic books it was just a big part of kind of growing up my childhood that 
that show, that cartoon, um, both the original Batman animated series and the, you know, the new Batman adventures and Superman and Batman Beyond and then um, to a lesser League. extent uh, the Justice League stuff. But um, but I've, I've gone back since and, and seen it all and love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, um, it, it, they were definitely an influence on me. No, yeah, I, yeah. It was just it was just things that I was noticing and just being like, well, might as well ask you just to see if sure, <laughs> see sure. if it was there. Um, and uh, I mean, even speaking of Batman Beyond, uh, so is is two point done? Is it you know, or are you going to continue more with that? No, it's done. It's been it's been done for a while. Okay. Um, whatever our last issue was, um, I think digital it was chapter forty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was the end of it. Um, okay. It's I, one, of those th- one of those things where uh, DC Digital, especially at that time, was, was you know, there were a couple editors on, on the West Coast who were doing everything mm-hmm. um, that were, that um, comprised the, the digital slate for DC, digital first slate. And, uh, you know, more projects are getting added to everyone's plate, which means certain things have to end. Yeah. Uh, they have to go to make room for new stuff. And in addition, in addition ah, let me try that again. <laughs> and in addition to that, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the projects that DC Digital tends to do now, I think have a, a pretty uh, mainstream uh, viability to them. Mm-hmm. And Batman Beyond, while a pretty successful cartoon from the 90s, is a cartoon from the 90s. Yeah. So, <laughs> so as far as mainstream accessibility goes um it's a pretty niche thing but still so yeah oh totally but (laughs) they were i mean everyone there was 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 so great with um letting us you know tell the story and finish the story that we wanted to tell and you know we even um alex and and hank even uh, let us switch from uh, a bi-weekly schedule to a weekly schedule mm-hmm. um, even though it was super taxing on Alex with all of his other responsibilities and other books that he was overseeing um, we just wanted to make sure we told the whole story and we didn't cut anything short and um, that's exactly what we were able to do and, and what I really um, what the, the one issue that really got to me was the, um, I mean it's probably one you've been asked about before but the, um, the explanation for Barbara and Dick's relationship falling apart basically oh right right <laughs> it's, I mean it is one of those things where when I was when I was watching the animated series and then Batman Beyond and there were these allusions to Nightwing and to Dick Grayson but he never showed up it was like what the hell happened you know and and for you to give your explanation um i thought that that was i don't know like i it, and i i i don't know sorry <laughs> no not at all um it just it felt like that's where it could have gone if the cartoon had allowed you know the writing team to go that far you know right you know i never really thought of that before um when i was planning it out that the show never was able to do anything with with sex, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually, when I when I recorded the first time on um, Kevin Smith's podcast on the Fat Man on Batman, yeah. Uh, afterwards, I told him what I was planning to do, and he's like, he's like, they're gonna let you do sex. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I don't, I don't see any reason. 
reason why not. He's like, they could never do it on the show. And then I started to think about it and went, oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> yeah, because it but, was like um, Barbara was in a relationship with, with Bruce, which I never agreed with, like just yeah, age gap-wise. To, to be totally honest, I never did either. And um, I never would have gone there in the book if the cartoon hadn't established that relationship, to be honest. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just not something that I would have... It's just, yeah, I just wouldn't have gone there. It's, yeah, it's um, just one of those things that when they started the the new adventures and everything, we're just like, R- what? <laughs> really? <laughs> it's like, yeah, not yeah. make sense to me at all. Um, yeah. But I'm not Bruce Tim and Paul Dini, so what do I know? <laughs> well, my whole thing with the book was that after Return of the Joker, um, all the answers that had been po- the, all the answers to the mysteries of the cartoon were solved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of the sense of intrigue and, and, uh, suspense as to what happened, um, that kind of really drove the show, um, and, and drove the show in such a smart way in that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a story generator, mm-hmm. but they were, they were emotional story generators Yeah, and Terry trying to figure out what the dynamic between everyone was and, and, the audience trying to figure out the dynamic just as Terry was. Um, once you got all those answers in Return of the Joker, um, it, it kind of, in my opinion, lost propulsion every other time we saw Terry, we, we saw Ben Beyond, mm-hmm. whether it be in you know Justice League episodes or, uh, or even in the comics. And so my pitch when I was asked to take over the book was um, to kind of bring some of that back. And the first, <clears throat> the first kind of uh, way I thought about it, about doing it, was jumping forward in time mm-hmm. and creating a, a bunch of new mysteries as to what happened in that missing year. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, what is the mystery? What is the what is the punchline to the joke? And um, it, I felt like it needed to be big. It needed to be on the same level as Return of the Joker was when I saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. And the Dick Barber Bruce relationship um, felt like there could be some um, some good emotional material mined there, and uh, yeah, I mean we I tried we tried to stay very respectful and do it in um, in a respectful way and mm-hmm. explore that stuff in a respectful way I should say. Um, well, yeah, and, and it, you know, it, I'm proud. I'm, I'm proud of it. So you know, you should be. It's uh, it. It was. It was really well done. Uh, I mean, just. I think it just makes sense. You know, you don't have to go too far into it to be like, okay, she lost the baby. Like that. That just kind of explains a lot of things. Yeah, you know, the one thing looking back on it now is it's funny. I haven't. I haven't actually thought about that book um, in. Since I since we wrapped it up oh. <laughs> um, until until right now, glad I but, could drum it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it was such a it was such a fun project to do that. Um, but I yeah, just kind of with with all the Batman Eternal stuff and then Cowl and all and a bunch of new projects I'm doing. You know, you just kind of you forget about what you were doing six, eight, nine months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that moment with, with her and the intercutting between you know. Dick attacking Bruce and then her um, kind of doubling over and implying that 
this would be kind of where she may have be losing the, the baby. Yeah. That's kind of my, that is actually kind of one, probably one of my one regrets. Like if I had a do over, I would take a little look at that sequence because it's just, I think there was a better way to do it. Do you think you went too far or just the execution of it? Yeah, I think that, um, I don't think I needed that final beat, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I think it would have been, could have very easily ended, could have intercut in the same way and had Barbara stop the mugger and then kind of, you know, I don't know. I think we could have ended her story there and then, and then wrap the, the issue on the Bruce and Dick, you know, fight and drama. And then the next chapter would have been Bruce, Dick, and Terry. Yeah, Bruce and Dick and Terry now, you know, kind of going over everything. And it, you could make it clear there that, you know, she, she lost the baby at some point. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you live and learn. And, um, that's, uh, that's what writing is, I guess. No, it's, I, I, to quote uh, Kevin Smith again, you're doing the Lord's work, sir. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and we're at, we're at over an hour. So, um, thank you so much for, for coming. Uh, it's not back, but you know, talking to me again, at least. Um, sure. It's my pleasure. Yeah, no, it's always great talking to you. And I love talking to you at cons too, cause you entertain my, uh, theories about, Oh my God, Ravager should show up and do this. And like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do have to ask, do you, do you miss Nightwing? Do you miss writing it? Do I miss Nightwing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, not actively, but, uh... <laughs> Every day you're like, man, Nightwing. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, uh, you know, he's my favorite character. He'll always be my favorite character. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll say this. I'm enjoying my time working on my own stuff. Excellent. Um, and that's not to take anything away from Nightwing or anything away from, you know, the the, the Bat books and the other stuff that I've that I've done and that I'm sure I will do more of. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it they say absence makes the heart grow fonder, and I think that's I think that's true, and I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I'm really enjoying the stuff I'm doing now, and um, but I I still have Nightwing posters and <laughs> Nightwing statues in my office, so. And that, that's it's not, all that it's matters. Not going no, of course not. Um, so before we go, Kyle, uh, where can people find you online if they would like to tweet at you or follow you on Facebook? <laughs> uh, Twitter is the best place. It's just Kyle D Higgins. Uh, so there's that. And uh, is there anything you want to plug at this time? Because this will probably go up um, Friday. Um, it's a uh, it's St. Patrick's Day for those who don't know. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think I don't think I have anything. Um, just, you know, Column 9 is out, uh, is out now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I highly recommend picking it up. Pick up, pick up any cowl issue. Um, all the cowls. a bunch of them all at once <laughs> and tell your store, uh, to, to order for you. And then listen to the cowl sessions while reading it and yes, you'll, exactly. you'll be good. It's all good there. Um, <laughs> for anyone who is interested in following me, I'm at darling underscore Sammy. Uh, you can also go to maniacalgeek.com uh, where you can listen to the podcast and read many, many articles because uh, <laughs> I can't help myself. Uh, but uh, once again, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Until next time. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Chicago, Chicago, that tunnel.
shut down Ooh, on State Street.